Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. My name is Toby Webb. Uh, delighted that joining me in today's podcast is Richard Lloyd from Accolade Wines. So, uh, Richard, you're also employed by the park as well, as I can see behind you, which the listeners can't see. So just explain to our listeners uh, who you are and what you do, because I think you're a pretty well-known name for some elements of the wine industry, but perhaps not for others. So give us that quick overview, Richard. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Um, yeah, Accolade Wines, largest wine company here in the UK, so own household names like Hardy's, the good old number one wine in the UK. Um, where the park fits in is the park is the sort of independent packaging facility that Accolade owns. So Accolade uh, built this facility 15 years ago when we were actually part of Constellation Brands, the world's largest wine company back then. So we're a facility down in Bristol that has been packaging wine in bulk now for 15 years but two years ago made a fundamental change where decided to become an independent entity because within the world of sustainability we now package and consolidate a number of leading brands not just accolades so we now have seven different businesses uh, that we now fill for and therefore when you look at the onward distribution of of product from here that's all consolidated onto one load so the retailers and our consumers around the uk it means that that the sort of the role that part can play is much bigger in the uk with wine industry being an independent packaging facility so does accolade still own the park completely accolade accolade owns the park um, and they're our largest customer, but it is very much moved to where they're a customer of this facility in the same way the other brand did. And we do some supermarket and label through the facility as well. Okay. And I've heard you talk on other podcasts and on various videos and so on about the credentials of the park. Just just, just run down uh, for our, our listeners what exactly you do, because I think that the operations you run have demonstrated some pretty significant carbon and climate change related savings for your customers so just run through how that's evolved in the last few years if you have any numbers or details for us yeah no i will do i suppose we are big so we fill a million wine bottles a day um but i think the thing that i love is that when people come here they see the finesse that goes with that i think sometimes when people see something big they think it's big and clunky uh we've got two resident winemakers on site so from a quality perspective um, we're in a very strong place. We have the world-leading dissolved oxygen pickup, so the lowest level of dissolved oxygen we managed to put into our sort of bottles. So from a quality standpoint and scale, we're big. How that then plays into sustainability, we're zero waste to landfill. We have the largest onshore wind turbine you're allowed in the UK um, that, that sits on the site. We won... A couple of years ago, the UK Manufacturer of the Year. And just to put that in context, the winner the year before was BMW and the winner the year after was McLaren Automotive. Um, two colossal engineering firms. And the reason why I raised that in the world of sustainability, our processes and the way that we manufacture fill wine um, is highly efficient. And therefore, not only do we just have renewable energy, we use as little amount as possible because we're incredibly efficient with our processes. And we also therefore have the mindset that any energy, any waste is examined and, and attempt to eliminate or, or make as sort of low as possible. 
so um, we've got a facility that, yes, has some big infrastructure that helps our sustainability. But we've won UK Sustainable Manufacturer of the Year for the last three years because of the engagement within the site. And just the story that I love the most at the moment is we introduced 3D printing of our parts two years ago. Um, and what I mean by that is the parts that go into our machines, we print, um, which for me blew my mind. I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. And when my team came to me and said, hey, we should have a look at this, I was going, no, the technology is not there. So instead of us flying a part in or shipping it in from Germany um, or somewhere around Europe, we now print it on site. So, so there's savings there. Um, but where this has gone, because we've got so much engagement on site, one of our waste streams is um, the backing of what the labels come in on. It, it, it's plastic. And at the moment, that leaves our site and goes off and is actually made into traffic cones. So um, that's how we get our zero waste to landfill. But we've just completed the trial where we're now taking that backing. And on site, we're extruding it ourselves into a filament that's then been manufactured into machine part. So our waste... We now have a waste stream that is um, closed loop within our facility and ends up as a cog in one of our machines. And for me, it blows my mind that my team's managed to sort of design, work with partners and bring that to life. So that's very much a circular economy approach. I mean, what have you learned from other manufacturers uh, about accelerating sustainability and, and how has that affected things in the last several years as, as you know all these concerns about climate change and impact accelerate you've got to go and work with a, a broad spectrum of people and so this project i was just talking to you about there we working with sheffield university around the extrusion we're working with some different businesses out there on 3d printing we've gone out and had a look at people in different industries and because everyone is driving it, I think you've got to really make sure that you look outside your in, uh, sort of industry and, and, and work with as many as possible and then extend your supply chain. So our screw caps at the moment come in from Poland uh, and they come in cardboard boxes and that's not right. We should be somehow using returnables. It, it doesn't make sense that we have one way. So we have a partnership with our screw cap supplier. We haven't got a solution at the moment, I'll be honest. Um, but we actually have got another business now called OptiShoot, I think they're called, that, that are working with us just to see how we can link reusables, closed loops. So there's just so many things going on. Um, I think that's the only way that you're ultimately going to get your footprint as low as possible. I think that's what's so interesting about industries related to or in industrial manufacturing. You know, you've got these ecosystems of other companies you can learn from so much more easily than in some other industries. And then the innovations can often make so much sense from an efficiency point of view quite quickly. So it's such a great fit for the circular economy, I always think, in, in manufacturing. What are some of the key numbers uh, that you throw around when, um, when, when asked about environmental performance? Just give us those headlines on, on reductions and efficiency and so on, just, and anything you haven't thrown in the mix already. Numbers always help. Yeah, they do. Um, we run Europe's largest wine bottling facility here. 
um, we're carbon net neutral, but obviously that means we're offsetting an element. Um, we've only got 2,000 tons left as a footprint that we've got to offset. So I'm really proud that we, we, we manage. There is a way to get your footprint really low. So if you were, like say, to come here and see the sheer scale to say that's what our footprint is. And I think some of it, Toby, at the first is just being aware. Um, it's probably not the right thing for me to talk about the global footprint of Accolade, which is fully offset is UK products now, but that mapping element and that scale is really important. So you then know what area you really need to put your effort to, to, to make that the scale of, of that impact. And um, I think glass gets a really interesting microscope at the moment in packaging as people are trying different formats. And I know it's been raised in the past, you know, what's the longevity of glass? For me, glass is the number one format to be in. When you look at dissolved oxygen, when you look at um, the quality, its big negative is its footprint, is the, the energy that's required to make it. So I think there are two solutions the glass, the glass industry in conjunction with the wine industry need to crack. One is the weight of the bottle. The weight of the bottle has no impact whatsoever on the quality of the wine. And we've got this crazy situation. You walk down your supermarket, as you move up from a five-pound bottle of wine to a 10-pound bottle of wine, you're probably going up 200 grams per bottle in glass weight that's purely aesthetics, but is damaging the planet. And therefore, for me, I think the step change that someone needs to change the game whether that's retailers, whether that's us manufacturers, we need to unite in educating the consumer that actually let's have all our wine in lightweight glass. Yeah, is that up to the consumer though? I always think of that Henry Ford quote, you know, if I'd asked the customer what they wanted, I'd have built a fast horse. I've been looking at all the consumer research for 20 years. Every time there's a new survey, you've seen them all, you know, we all want to buy sustainably, but then when you go shopping, it's a very stressful environment. You know, even I, as a sustainability person, and, and yourself, I'm sure, sometimes you go shopping, you, you know, you think, oh, did I think about the sustainability credentials of that product? Probably didn't. So I wonder, is it more up to the supermarkets here? Because we're convening a group of, of members of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable to look at bottle weight um, uh, and, and, you know, what can be done there. And I wonder, is it going to be more about the retailers simply saying at some point, you know, we're just not going to stock glass that's that heavy? I think I agree with you about 95%. Someone needs to be bold here. I think you're right. You can try and educate people. And I think there are elements where people are doing a good job with certain brands talking about the sustainability credentials. And I don't know how far away are we from having the carbon footprint on a product? I don't know. I, I go back to when we built this facility, we actually bought all our production lines to have cork. And in the nine months from, if I'm honest, when uh, we bought, I'm a proud British manufacturer but we bought german machinery um from when it was being manufactured to one of those things everything went to screw cap so if you look at that toby the wine industry in the uk made a move only 15 years ago from cork to screw cap and i'm sure there were a zillion people back then saying oh it will destroy sales and everything and it's now screw cap someone needs to be as bold on the weight of the glass and i think you're right the retailers hold the key 
Um, I actually think the end consumer is becoming more and more knowledgeable these days of an inquisitive. But wine in the UK is still bought on price point. Brand loyalty, pretty low. Certain brands do have a standing. But so much is bought on promotion, which is driven by the supermarkets. So um, I think the industry, the retailers, everyone needs to unite. Um, I was really impressed. There was a wine company the other day put an advert out that actually said, we're reducing the weight of our bottle. Went into one of the magazines and said why they're doing it in terms of the reduction. I thought that's absolutely brilliant because um, they're just there. They're, they're, they're doing the bit, I suppose, what you're saying, but that's only going to be incremental, isn't it, as opposed to a transformational change there. People are trying to edu- educate the consumer. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one for marketing as well because there's there are all these kind of uh, traditions that we see uh, in in wine that perhaps didn't exist 20, 30 years before. And the heavier bottle, I don't know how long that's been around for, but I recently found a stash of early eighties Bordeaux, um, decent wines, not great ones. For some reason, they're in brilliant condition, and we weighed the bottles afterwards. They're all about four hundred and fifty grams. Uh, from 81, 85, 87. Um, and so you think, well, at what point did we decide that this was going to be a tradition? Um, and it's a tricky one for the marketers, isn't it? And Well, if you, if you sorry, but if, if you look at ro- rosé, you know, the rosé aisle has become about bottle shape. And in some way, you've got to give a tick to the marketeers. They're, they're in a very competitive wine aisle. Some people are making a disruptive statement by the shape of the bottle. But, but like you say, it's just the wrong thing as, as the lens of the world tries to get its sort of carbon footprint down. It, it, it's, it's not going to happen if, if we keep going down that route and someone needs to be bold. Yeah, it's a really tricky one. I mean, through my other business, Innovation Forum, we run an annual packaging and plastics conference and you know i remember one of the waste companies saying a few years ago they were seeing more than 30 new compounds a month coming across their desk sometimes that they're supposed to be able to recycle and they don't even know what's in them and that sort of proliferation i guess we've also seen in in glass marketing um and of course nobody wants to move to communist era five-year plans with set production set bottle sizes and so on because we know that that didn't work out so well so the the question is what sort of incentive schemes are are going to drive change and i guess retail demand is one and then things like like extended producer responsibility, DRS has a pretty poor reputation in the UK as currently planned. What are your views on, on those other kinds of incentives that might make it a difference? Yeah, I think the other big bit which we haven't mentioned is the glass manufacturers have a role to play here in finding a way to lower the energy requirement to fire a furnace. And what I'm going to do with that is some guys are going to unlock having a hydrogen-powered furnace soon. And, and therefore, I think in conjunction with glass weight reduction, there has to be a different way that the glass is ultimately blown and, and produced. So um, I think, you know, the glass industry, and let's be honest, we're talking wine, there's a much bigger issue in the spirit industry, isn't there, where the bottle plays an even larger role. If you look at the gin market these days, I look at the gin market and think, what are you guys going to do? because it's all on the shape and the weight. And um, so oh, DRS and I'm a sort of believer in on that one of 
can we not just make curbside recycling work? I, I, I sort of, we, we've got a system that's not bad. I'd much prefer as a, as a nation, we put the energy into sort of standardize and making that work than trying to get something else going from scratch because we're going to drive force people into what driving to a supermarket with a bottle um, as opposed to just walking to the end of your drive and putting it outside. I don't, has someone truly looked at let's all do our lovely scope one, scope two and scope three is I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't want to be too rude to who's designed it and done the footprinting. I'm, I'm not bought it. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to me historically it's easier to reform and improve existing systems than entirely new ones on top of 400 different municipal recycling schemes in the UK. Um, so, uh, yeah, move, well, moving on from that, do you see a time uh, when wine will not be sold in 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 glass as it's currently produced under a certain price point is that I, I always whenever I ask people this question I always think it's too simplistic a question but it's kind of partly the reason I ask it is that it causes a good conversation because it, it, I've I met some people recently in the wine sector we've been speaking to and they're sort of saying well look, anything under let's say 10 pounds or 15 euros a bottle at some point that's indefensible to put it in glass until we have an energy revolution that gives us green hydrogen for baseload power is that the wrong question? Do you see merit in that discussion? Uh, I see there being space for all formats. I think COVID has fundamentally changed our behaviours in the way that we consume wine. And I think there's formats that work for different occasions. And what I mean by that is I was lucky enough to be at the Commonwealth Games last week and I sat and drank some wine out of a um, flat PET bottle. And um, around a sporting stadium where you don't want broken glass and different elements, great format. I was at an outdoor comedy festival, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and there was wine in can. And that, again, was the right format for the right occasion. Um, I don't think, I think people are trying to generate a conversation where it's one versus the other. I think there's a role. So those two products or those two formats have a much shorter shelf life than if you put wine in glass. And you're absolutely right to raise the price element that, that is there and the price point that wine is at. So I think there's a multitude of things going on. I think having this summer is the first summer where you know truly post-covid where people are out drinking wine in different formats i think will shape a change in the formats within the supermarkets so i think over the next 12 months people will be way more akin to going in and buying wine in the canon supermarket whereas before i don't think people are comfortable to step out the norm well, that's great to hear because all you have to do is go to someone like Helsinki and walk into an Alco shop, the Monopoly, and you look at some of the alternative packaging. It's incredibly attractive, actually. It doesn't all have to look like, you know, a, a, a sort of dusty grey box on the bottom shelf. Do you, do you are you seriously sensing appetite from retailers to play around with those formats and you know move them up a shelf, move them forward, get better packaging on them? Is is that something we're, you're seeing more of? A strategic pillar of our site 
is multi-format. We, we were very clear when we became an independent packer, we had to be, what is our offering? And for me, we need to have multi-format. 90% of the wine that we fill here is still into a glass bottle. We fill into cans, we fill into pouches, we fill into bag and box. Each one of those is showing signs of growth at different rates. Um, and the retailers are experimenting. But I think the consumer in wine still has a low level of confidence, and that's why ultimately they still buy on price and promotion. Um, I probably shouldn't use my wife as an example in too many things, but she had wine in can at this sort of comedy festival. And she was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that, that you know, it was in cans and I had this discussion. And then she was with friends the next weekend and she'd been and bought some wine in cans. So the reason why I tell that story is her behavior got changed from that one event being at an outdoor and therefore she went and searched it in the supermarket. I think other people will do that. At the Commonwealth Games, the wine that was there was in a flat plastic bottle. That will give someone the confidence when they're then in a supermarket and see it and go, oh, the wine was okay in here. And, and maybe actually this is the right format when I'm going camping at the weekend or, or whatever. So um, the supermarket, certainly from our discussions, and like I say, I, I package some own label for some of them. Um, format is critical for them to, for, to be part of our part of the portfolio. So I don't see it as being one or other. I see it as part of a portfolio. But equally, I suppose there's an increasing onus on retailers and product design uh, designers and manufacturers to make the stuff look better. And I, I've seen, if you look at the Bib Wine Company, I keep sending my dad's stuff from them. It looks beautiful, those boxes. Bag and Box has the biggest area. So when you go with it, and I'm sat and I'm with it, Bag and Box is the one format in the UK that's really frustrated me. You mentioned that you know, over in the Nordics, they consume eight times as much in Bag and Box. Bag and Box has the lowest carbon footprint of all formats. They've got to crack the recyclable side. You've got to separate it. So, so you have that slight, it ticks a massive box on carbon footprint. Recyclability, it's, it, it's got a challenge at the moment. But when you talk about marketing, you have the whole face that's there. And like you say, some people are just really waking up to it. And I think that you're right. There's some designs out there at the moment are outstanding in terms of the way they're being disruptive with using a much larger print face than if you think of a wine label. A wine label is about sort of 25% of a bag in box. So, um, and, and that's where it's not just, you know, different countries can learn from one to the other. In the UK, there's still a stigma about the quality of wine in bag and box. And there's a number of companies, to be fair to them, are trying to change it. And if you look at now, when this site opened, the most common size we used to package bag and box is three litre. It's now one and a half litre. Some of that's driven by price point. People will only pay so much into their basket when they go shopping. So as people put higher quality wine into bag and box, obviously unit price is going to go up. So that's where I think, you know, the movements to 1.5 litre is really good because it's at a price point that a consumer is likely to spend on a single purchase. Yeah, I guess they can also see 
you know, they can see the end of it, if you like, because three litres just seems like a big commitment. <laughs> We're think like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a bit of an alcohol with this in my shopping trolley and it's too big for the counter, won't it go off? And, all, and all, none of those things are probably true, but but there's a psychological barrier there. So as you say, that kind of smaller format um, that's more handy could be the way to go. It's to our earlier point, really, isn't it, about how, how quickly traditions seem to evolve and yet how quickly they can be changed when when people put their minds to it i think of brew dog as an example you know it's been pointed out to me by a few people that there's a lot to be learned from the the beer industry which has revolutionized itself as you well know in the last 20 years you've now got these incredible cool funky labels which is starting to appear on some wine bottles but that's not quite drifted over yet into alternative wine packaging well that seems like a great opportunity yeah i don't know yeah but i'm with you on cans you know at the end of the day digital printing on labels is has moved phenomenally and the wine industry, let's be honest, historically has been quite slow in terms of embracing packaging change. Like when you talk about other categories, like you say, wine, historically, you can buy a single bottle or you buy a case of six. Like you look at any other category, you can buy two, three, half this, you know, wine historically. And that's where I suppose the park and we're trying to, don't know, agitate a little bit and, and and try and change some of the game in wine and, and try and fast forward it. And I think it's why we've won some of the business that we have, because there's a number of people out there that recognize that wine has to move away from, it must be a Bordeaux bottle or a Burgundy and it must be this weight and it must be this quantity. It needs to move. Well, certainly in terms of, um, you know, the alcohol impact of wine. We all know you open a bottle of wine, it's too easy to have too much of it or more than you should. But a can of beer, it's not going to hurt you, even two cans of beer. So those sort of smaller amount and making that work, that seems like a huge opportunity, both from a harm reduction point of view, uh, from a consumption point of view, but also from that kind of marketing side. If, but, it, you know, it's, it, it's changing the culture of the industry, isn't it? Which is, that's the big challenge. I totally agree. And that's why I go back to what format is, because you say maybe on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday night, you only want to have a glass or two. So why don't we sell more 50 CL bottles, you know, that, that's there. But actually on a Friday when there's a few more of you actually, and, and you don't mind waking up, you know, with a bit of a hangover, let's, let's have a bag in box. You know, there's, there's, there's different. And like you say, if you're in the beer industry or something, it's easy to get that format switch. Yeah, interesting. Well, we're planning on charting that journey with the members of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable and um, discussing how it can lead to everyone's advantage. L let me ask you about your competitors. I know you're fairly unique, but there are other companies who you know, distribute wine and import it. What, what would be pre-competitive for you in collaboration with others that you might look as your peers? Where's that balance between competition and collaboration on sustainability which is particularly challenging i think in a, in a business like yours where the margins are you know it's all about it's a lot of volume and the margins are not always you know like they are in other some other sectors we might say so how does that sort of play out into your views on collaboration shipping is interesting shipping wine by the nature of it um many products you'll try and produce in your country of sale um the core ingredient of wine is clearly critical where it comes from. So, um, and the shipping leg of that is a significant part of the footprint. The shipping industry at the moment 
um, has been below 40% reliability in for 18 months now. The cost of it has doubled on a lot of the shipping routes. Um, and the infrastructure around the ports of the UK is fairly poor in terms of how you move from a, a UK port to a facility and, and how it all works. I certainly would like to work with other facilities around that because ultimately the scale of any one of us um, is tiny in the world of global shipping and containers that move around the world. So I think there are elements where that we can work together. I think where we talk about the glass weight, we should work together to try and generate the change within our industry. Um, there are elements, I suppose, where we learn how to minimize wine loss, which we've probably been quite protective of. Um, and, and, but there are bits where um, the great news is I think there's more than enough business for all of us. And the reason why I go to that is there's still a way too much wine that's brought into the UK that's brought in as finished product. So over half the product that comes from South America and all the growth of Chile comes in as a finished product. And you look at the weight of most Chilean bottles, more and more companies are now recognizing that they need to switch to shipping in bulk. Um, and most manufacturers or, or bottlers in the UK at the moment are adding to their capacity because the demand is growing. So I sit here and I have huge respect for the other facilities in the UK. And each one of us have got different strengths. You know, people are, some of the other guys are diversifying into different spirits and different areas. We're very clear that we're about being a wine specialist and we're about sustainability and we're about supporting um, multi-formats. Um, so, yeah, shipping would be the top the, where I think we should look at doing something together and we can impact and lessen the, the, the footprint. But there are clearly other areas as well. But the biggest bit is just switching more and more wine companies to recognize ship your wine in bulk and package it in the country of sale because that reduces your carbon footprint by 40%. Yeah, if we think about the the history of wine, that's how it started. I think the oldest tasting note in English in the world, I think it's in Cambridge University, and I think it's Samuel Pepys doing a tasting note on Hope Brion 1660-something, and I'm pretty sure Hope Brion used to move wine in barrel to London and sell it in their pub uh, to build, to make the market. So this is not exactly a new idea. <laughs> no, and, and, and I think people are moving forward. You know, I'm thrilled that, that I'm managing to talk at the, the Masters of Wine. Of, they've got an annual Saporium next year, and, and I'm doing a bit around uh, analysis of wine in the different formats. So we're packaging one wine in four different formats, and there's then going to be a load of blind tasting there, and we're just going to have a look at how the wine is performing. I, I would give a very strong passionate but technical argument that actually shipping wine in bulk you'll get the wine to your end consumer in a better quality standard than shipping it in finished product and there's all kinds of reasons that I can go into for that so 
I think a while ago there was this misnomer that actually shipping in bulk is not as good for it and, and so on. I, I think we're slowly managing to change that perception. And that's why I work with people like the Masters of Wine and we absolutely open our doors here and do blind wine tastings and we'll prove because when you've got a 40% reduction on your carbon footprint, why, why would any business sidestep that opportunity? Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's great to be have them involved as key influencers. Uh, and it's funny, my colleague and I were talking to a producer um, who ships, I think, globally about 33 million bottles a year recently. And, and one of the phrases we coined in the conversation with them was from, from just in time to right time of delivery, which is probably not a new cliche. I'm sure it's been invented elsewhere. But yeah, his point was not everyone needs that case of six or 12 bottles in 72 hours or a week. Why are we not thinking much harder about asking the customer, well, when do you need it? Uh, because we could save an awful lot of money by smarter warehousing and distribution if we can just go move from this kind of Amazonian type, you know, you must. Toby, I couldn't agree more. Where, where We talk about collaboration with the retailers, and I must be careful because they've completely changed their working style with us. And I think the word collaboration and the way we're working is, is vastly changed. But ultimately, the majority of them still work to an eight-week promotional calendar. Wine is typically on 12, 14, 16 weeks lead times. So we've got this crazy setup where the promotion, which drives the sale, is set within the lead time of your product. So on your point, it's the only way that you can therefore maintain the service levels is by holding an inventory of X. And I think there is, and it's one of the things that's absolutely on my radar is trying to get to the point where I can influence a change in the way wine is ordered. Because the length of the lead time will forever be there. And at the moment, the behavior of some of the retailers are as if it's a beer and it's manufactured and produced and made in the country. They're two completely different models. Um, so I think that point you make is really valid. And Again, that's another improvement I think the wine industry needs to unite on to sort of move forward. Well, that's part of the reason for setting up the Sustainable Wine Roundtable to try and drive these conversations and collaborations and work out where we can be pre-competitive and where to be competitive because we need both of those elements. A, a final question for you, Richard. Um, as with any business, um, big business, you're looking at scope three carbon emissions. Scope three for everybody is a nightmare. That you know, There's guidance... Uh, coming out all the time it's a very much a moving target but when you look at your overall emissions picture do you find yourself sometimes thinking you know are we running up against our limits fairly soon you know without a breakthrough in in baseload power energy generation which is kind of out of our hands are you know are there limits to what we can say we can do in the next 10 20 years or do you do you, you or do you get a sense there's more more innovation to come which can help us make that leap now, I'm convinced there's more innovation to come. So I think rail is, is massive in terms of what it can do. Um, I think the bit where I'm talking about ordering patterns is huge, that I think there needs to be a lot of movement forward in terms of that data flow and transparency up and down the supply chain. So at the moment, it's still 
fairly siloed between the different nodes of the supply chain, and therefore there are inefficient flows. I think the world is moving forward with AI. We, we've embraced it massively. It's where our wine loss at the moment, if I'm being competitive with the other facilities, is half of the other facilities in the UK at the moment. And that's because we've embraced technology from other industries, artificial intelligence, and driven it forward. There is no reason whatsoever around why um, we wouldn't be able to do that with shopper habits, order profiles. So everyone's looking at this physical infrastructure. I'm a bit of a believer there's something to do around information flow and data and, and how we link all the way back to a vineyard that flows through so totally i i i, I see that i i see the wine and uh, massive opportunity well i think you're right i mean in my other business um innovation forum we work with lots of agricultural um businesses and food manufacturers and in a sense we're only just getting started and working out where some of the efficiencies are because while these just-in-time food systems have been incredible and and have been shown to have vulnerabilities during covid there's also a huge amount of inefficiency around still um but it's not sort of sexy to go and find it's, it. It, uh, it, it, it it's inefficiency and waste because let's not like we have a product that has a shelf life and and i also see where i see businesses launch something a retailer's not quite happy with the rate of sale and they'll delist it. And there's X amount of product that goes to landfill that's perfectly good, but there's just too much separation between that um, sales insight, marketing insight, and, and the supply chain trying to second-guess it. So... It's not just it's being efficient. And, and that's why there needs to be a change. There is a long lead time. It's ultimately an agricultural process at the back end with a very big commercial front end. And they don't always meet very happily in the middle. And therefore, I think there needs to be some behavior changes up and down the supply chain. I think you're right. And I think that's where collaboration is key. And that's really how we define innovation these days is those collaborative conversations to drive those innovations that can cut out the efficiencies, cut out the inefficiencies and, and save on waste. So a lot more work to do. Uh, you guys are clearly um, doing some great stuff now. So thank you so much for your time, Richard. Uh, we will hopefully call upon your uh, your experience through other uh, things the Sustainable Wine Roundtable will be doing over the next few months. We'll be in touch about that. But in the meantime, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can find out more by Googling uh, The Park, uh, Plus Wine or uh, Accolade, um, if you don't know um, about their operations already. I hope this podcast has been helpful. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. No, it's good. Thank you very much. 